Well, for those who don't know, my name is Ross Westcott. I am not a pastor at New Life. I was an elder here prior to the adoption. And since COVID-19 has come in, I'm no longer a practicing bass player. But you did see me at Christmas Eve. That was special. I hadn't played with any of my compatriots here at New Life for about 10 months, so that was special for me. And, and I, from what I heard, I think it was special for everybody else, too, to, to actually see some other faces uh, playing music. So that was great. Um, I, I do lead a life group, and this is a shameless plug. Uh, Tuesday nights here at 7 o'clock, right here at, at, in the building. So if, uh, if you want to plug in, if you're not plugged in, and you want to come experience what a life group is, 7 o'clock, Tuesday nights, we'll be here Tuesday. Um, the other thing that I am is a gardener. Now, that's going to make sense here in a couple minutes, so hang in there with me, if you will. As a gardener, I only have about 256 square feet of garden space. For those who like to do math, that's six one-thousandths of an acre. My garden is not that big, and I don't compare to a farmer. Uh, I grow more than one crop each year, which is really great, uh, but I can't feed the neighborhood. I do give some of my garlic and onions away, but that's not feeding the neighborhood, and I don't know if anybody makes a complete meal out of onions and garlic especially the garlic part. Uh, but what I really enjoy besides eating the fruit of my efforts is putting a seed in the ground and waiting for it to pop up. And when it finally pops up, pops up, what that tells me is I haven't killed it. And it, it's really a great feeling to see this little shoot pop up and go, all right, now how long will it take? I tell myself, how long will that take to to get there, and, and quite frankly, different types of plants take different times to come to harvest. I have to be patient. Now, generally, a shoot pops up anywhere from four, two to four weeks after I plant it, but I still have to wait, and anywhere from 30 days to six to seven months. Peppers take about seven months sometimes to, to come to fruit. The only exception to that is is asparagus, bear with me, I'm getting there. <laughs> asparagus, which generally will provide fruit in about two years, and then once it starts growing, it'll grow anywhere from four to six inches a day. So I can pop a shoot off, and a couple days later, I'm popping up other shoots. As they, they, you can almost sit there and watch them. It's great. The only crop that seems to come up healthy and early and last the longest are my weeds. And if you've ever planted a garden, you know the weedy part. I don't eat my weeds. So you may ask, why do I put up with all the work and effort to keep gardening? It seems like it's a whole lot of effort, and it is. But the reason is that because in the end, and despite my efforts... Despite the setback caused by bugs, neighborhood cats, dogs, and squirrels, and an occasional deer, the fruit is precious, and the harvest is worth waiting and working for. I just must 
be patient. And that brings us to our passage this morning, which will come up there. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. I want to thank Alexander for reading that. If you recognize that voice, Alexander Scurry, who has done the entire Bible, I've always wanted to put him up there. I got my chance, <clears throat> and he got his chance. So our passage this morning deals with an aspect of our Christian lives that many could use more of, and that is patience. From this passage in James 5, we see that God's people should wait patiently for God, for him to keep his promise to judge the wicked and rescue his people from their oppression. Earlier in James, having warned the rich and powerful oppressors of God's people about the coming judgment, he, he warns believers about the poor use of their language and not living like the world lives. James turns now to encourage his brothers and sisters, and he's saying that one day Jesus Christ will come again to rescue his people from those who oppress and persecute them. He will put an end to injustice and evil, and his people were certainly going through a lot of that. James's solution is that God's people should live and wait patiently. As a farmer, this is the tie, as a farmer waits patiently for his crops to grow from the earth. That patience is warranted because God has shown himself to be faithful. He is true to his word. It's going to happen. And he says so, you should wait patiently because it's going to happen and not write him off. He will, without fail, keep his promises, just as he always has. The goal of James's exhortation is to encourage and unite his readers as a community of Christ, because at this point, he's writing to the family of believers. The patience he talks about should be a patience that endures until the coming of the Lord. If you recall, James dealt with patience in chapter 1, where he said, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 3-4. There we discovered that patience dealt with the situations and circumstances of life, such as waiting for a red light to turn green, or waiting for a line to move to buy tickets to a concert, 
are waiting for a pandemic to be declared over. We need to be patient for all that. And that's from James 1. Here in James 5, it's a little different word. The word here in James 5 translated patience has a completely different meaning and is a long holding out of the mind before it gives room to action and, or passion, generally to passion. This is a very special kind of patience, a spiritual patience that never gives in. It perseveres and suffers on and, and on no matter what attacks it. It endures and is worth fighting for. So there's more action in this patience. It's not sitting on the couch twiddling one's thumbs. It's movement. Two significant facts need to be noted here about the spiritual patience in James 5 as opposed to the situational patience in James 1. First, spiritual patience, spiritual patience is not a passive acceptance. It does not lay back and accept trials and temptations as though they were part of life that nothing can be done about. You can do things about this. Spiritual patience is an active, fighting endurance that confronts trials and temptations and that sets out to conquer them. Second, spiritual patience is a fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, to 23, that says, and this is not in the slides, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. When the believer faces some trial or temptation, the Holy Spirit arouses within us the urge to combat the situation to conquer it, then it's up to us to respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit, to act on the urge and to persevere. It is up to us to refuse to give in to the enslavement and discouragement or defeat that sometimes patience puts us in front of. We must stand fast and keep our eyes fixed on the goal and the end, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a promise from him. It's a lesson that was true then, and it's a lesson that is also true for today. Many people today seem to not be very patient, and we see it every day, spiritually or otherwise. I've got a couple surveys here I'm going to quote, just kind of show you impatience in action. In a 2019 British survey and a 2015 American survey of adults 18 and older, the pollsters discovered the following. For the British, many reported losing their cool after just 18 seconds of searching for a pen. Why would you even ask that question? <laughs> and then losing their temper after just 20 seconds of waiting for ink to dry on the greeting card. So 18 seconds to find a pen, and then 20 more seconds to wait for it to dry. Why don't they just use ballpoint pens where it dries automatically? I think I would become impatient after that, too. It only takes 22 seconds for people to start cursing their computers or TVs if a show or movie doesn't immediately start streaming. 22 seconds. Yeah. 
Waiting in line seemed to especially annoy respondents with 45% admitting that they had lost their temper after waiting just 30 seconds. That was 2019. It was not this year. I wonder what that would be this year. Were they more patient waiting to get into Home Depot after a half hour or not? It's not quite as, it's just as bad as bad for Americans. 71% of Americans frequently exceed the speed limit to get their destination faster. Not occasionally. You know, if it's 55, you go 56. Don't you just to get there a little faster? Not 80. Just a little bit. Nearly a third of respondents, that's 33%, ages 18 to 24, wait less than one second before passing a slow walker. I don't think I wait one second either, just go. Gen wires check their phones an average of eight times when waiting to hear back from someone. You can see this. Every 30 seconds. Maybe some of you non-gen wires do that too. I don't know. That's what the poll said in 2015. However, for both the British and the Americans, 95% of respondents still admitted that they believe patience is a virtue. A virtue. Somehow, that no longer seems a reality. Now James is saying that, back to James. James is saying that there are greater things to be patient for than waiting in line or for ink to dry on a piece of paper. James 5, 7, and 9 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James has dealt ex extensively with the challenges and opposition to the believer. And, and here in James 5, he exhorts believers to be long-suffering and have patience with those who offend or anger us. Certainly in 2020, there are many opportunities for people to offend and anger us. How has our patience been? His advice is, in effect, stop, brother, calm down, be tolerant, reduce your irritability, don't lose it, hold on to it, don't be so touchy, chill. Those are my words, not James's words. James uses the illustration of the farmer to bring his point home to us because no matter what confronts him, the farmer, much like the lesser gardener, does all he can to conquer the trial, to make that harvest occur. Why does he endure so patiently? Because his eyes are fixed upon the great day of harvest. The end goal of planting any seed is that day of harvest. The example for believers, for us, is very strong here. Believers, he's saying, you also be patient and endure just as the farmer. Do two things. Not three, just do two things. First, believers must establish their hearts. The word establish means to set upon, to fix upon, to make fast, to make solid. We must set our hearts upon the Lord's coming, for his coming is near. 
That's the message of, of a lot of the New Testament, and James here in particular. The idea is that Christ's return can happen at any moment. We must focus and set our hearts upon his return, be looking for it every day to combat and overcome temptations and trials, no matter how bad the situation may be. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In Eden, God walked with Adam and Eve. The fall fractured that fellowship, and, and God withdrew. From that point on, he was accessible through special visions or, or later on in the, in the tabernacle in the temple. But in Christ, through Christ, the Lord came to restore the fellowship that was lost in Eden. This is our great hope, and James calls believers to be patient considering that great hope. He's reestablished that relationship. He says, wait for that to come to fruition. It's a great wait and a great reason to wait. Second, believers must not complain about, mur complain about murmur against, or judge other believers. This is a tough one. We must not grumble about our circumstances, our trials and temptations, blaming others for what happens to us. We are waiting together for the same thing. So why complain against one another? We're in the same boat. Complaining against a brother is one thing God will not tolerate. Note what James says. If we complain, murmur, and grumble, we will be condemned. And behold, the judge stands at the door. This is an extraordinarily strong warning to us. Unless we forget that our behavior matters, James reminds us in verse 9 that God will judge such activity in our lives. Our sin was atoned and forgiven on the cross, but poor behavior will bear consequences. If we allow bitterness and undue anger to consume us, we cannot expect God to bless our lives. Now note, this is not, I repeat, not a loss of salvation, but a loss of blessing. James now takes us further to encourage our pursuit of the patience. James 5, 10 to 11, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Here, James discusses the believer's pursuit of patience and the results. Many times, patience doesn't come naturally. We must work at it. I must work at it. No doubt, some of the early believers were tempted to abandon their faith, and walk away because of the difficulties they were facing. It must have seemed that all of this adversity waited at every turn. Every time they woke up, adversity was there. How do they persevere? They must have been discouraged and tired of dealing with the conflict, day in, day out. Imagine your life if you had conflict every day, how waking up would weigh on it. James reminds them that they are not the only ones facing hardships. 
James tells them that the prophets of old also faced extreme heart difficulties, and these prophets were imprisoned, beaten, and threatened with death. Surely they too felt like giving up at times and lashed out in anger, but, but they endured the affliction and exercised patience. James brings up Job as an example of patience and suffering tested by Satan through the death of his family and the loss of everything he owned, Job questioned God, but he never cursed God or turned his back on him. Job remained faithful and was commended in the end. This is comfort for us in that thought also. God will honor and reward those who patiently endure. Now, I can't imagine suffering like Job suffered. You know, it is a tremendous suffering that he did. I also can't imagine being burned at the stake or having animal skin sewn on me and thrown into an arena with wild beasts or thrown in prison for my faith. We here in the United States do not suffer the way others in the world suffer. Many around the world are facing the certainty of death if even if their faith is discovered. They may not even be practicing their faith at the moment, but they just had it discovered and would be oppressed and put upon. Surely we can endure the comparatively minor difficulties we face with patients when others have it so much worse. We have no way of knowing what we may have to endure tomorrow. Not being a seer, I can't tell what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day, but by the grace and help of God, we can endure. He is our deliverer, period. James 5.12 says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, and let your yes be yes, or your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, there seems to be a difference of opinion on what swear and oath mean, and I'm going to give you both. On one side, there are those who feel that this means an oath such as, I swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. The other side believes this refers to cursing or profane language. However, both are applicable. On the oath side, James is saying that our word is to be honest and straightforward. Therefore, he commands his readers to stop swearing by oaths. People who speak with integrity do not need to swear by an oath. Having kept their word in the past, people believe what they say, and an oath is just not necessary. That's what James is saying. There's no need to swear on anything like, believe me, I swear, or that's the gospel truth. That's a similar oath. We must be genuine in what we say rather than attaching a rash promises to the end of our statement. Integrity should always guard our speech. Integrity should always guard our lives. Many take that position, and rightly so, that James is arguing against oaths in our speech to always have integrity. But oaths are not something that we generally use today. It's not something that that makes an impression on us today. That's the oath side. 
Contextually, James also seems to be saying that when we lose our patience, we should not curse because this is not a way to glorify God. James is then asking us to stop cursing as a response to losing our patience. Contextually, it seems that that's also what he may be talking about. So what does the passage really mean? And after studying it, I could argue both ways. It means both. In either case, our verbal focus should be on God's, on God's concern of how we communicate in our ordinary conversations. As we endure difficulties and our patience is tried, we must guard our hearts so we can hold our tongues. We must guard our hearts so we can hold our tongues. Now let me expand for a minute on the cursing side. And no, I'm not going to curse up here. I would probably lose half of you right then. I want to keep you to the end. It seems to me that more and more profanity and vulgarity have overtaken some of our conversations and have polluted everything we see and hear. It's just more and more around us. And we seem also to have become numb to it. Because the more we are exposed to it, sometimes it just numbs us. And through that numbness, many have become sloppy in their speaking habits. Don't know about anybody in here, but people do. Believers do. And I have an example of that. I'm going to read to you an example of one position from a professing, progressive Christian brother. He professes to be a believer. He had a conversion experience but he lives in a more progressive state. State of mind, let's put it that way. Uh, His name, I'm going to give you the reference, so if you really want to, you can go look it up. John Shore, who published what I'm about to read in a blog he called The Comfortably Cursing Christian, from December 2017 in the Huff Post wasn't hard for me to find. In that article, in part, he says, and I quote, this is not me saying this, this is the quote from the blog, I am a Christian who is entirely confident that God is perfectly okay with me cursing whenever I want to. The key phrase there is whenever I want to. I don't often want to. I very rarely use curse words around kids or around strangers. But with friends and other people whom I can tell aren't likely to be offended, I pretty much curse like the warehouse working teamster I used to be. For about the first year or two after I became a Christian, I totally tried to never curse because I figured that was part of the Christian deal. Now, I figured God would be happier with me if I just said what I had to say instead of trying to come up with a language of expression different from any other language I'd ever known or used. Now we're getting to the part that caught my eye. If that didn't catch my eye, his last paragraph did. Anyway, I curse when, how, or about what I want to. I trust myself with that ongoing judgment. I'm confident that God trusts me with it too, and I sure don't see anything in the Bible 
about how a cursing is a sin or whatever. I thought it would be there. Quote, thou shalt not use dirty words or something, but it's not. As far as I know, there's nothing in the Bible about cursing at all. Unquote. I beg to differ, John Shore. It's not a language issue. It's not a rights issue. It's not a trust issue. It's not a, a who I swear in front of issue. It's not even a fake curse word issue. It's a heart issue. If Mr. Shore had just read his Bible, he would have found James 1.26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Proverbs 4.24, put away from you crooked speech and devious talk far away from you. Romans 12.14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Colossians 3.8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And this is not on the slide. Exodus 20.17, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold them guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, I agree with John that the Bible does not use the exact words, don't use curse words. There is no that exact quote in the scripture with then following with a forbidden list in bold italic font. Won't find that. However, Christians are to stay away from filthy language, unwholesome talk, and crude joking. Christians are instructed to keep from being polluted by the world and to reflect the image of God, and cursing does not do that. Unlike our progressive brother, John Shore, a minor amount of understanding of what Scripture means may have led them to a different conclusion. Don't curse. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Well, not quite. But you get the point? It was his last sentence that caught my attention, that it doesn't exist in Scripture. Oh, my. When patience is tried, we are tempted to lash out in anger. And if we aren't incredibly careful, you might even curse or speak for profanely. At that moment, and depending on where we lose it, our testimony may be tarnished for those who are present. All the patience we have exhibited in the past may consumed and destroyed in just a single moment of profanity. No doubt many of us in a moment of hurt or anger have said things that we wished we hadn't. But once words are spoken, we can't bring them back. They're out. They've been heard. And that's that. James is advocating that we should be honest and trustworthy, but that we should that we should not do so in vain or profane speech. We are blessed above all creation with the ability to speak and communicate with such intricate language. Our speech ought to always glorify the Lord and our Savior, and cursing does not do that. 
and isn't just the words. What is foul to us is not necessarily the same in other countries. So it's just not the words, it's the meaning behind the words. And the opposite is also true from other countries to here. As an example, an Arabic insult is to call someone a shoe. Now, I had thought about using the real word for these two words. But I didn't know anybody who spoke Arabic, so I don't know if I'd be cursing at you by using these words. So I'm going to describe the word, and hopefully no one is insulted by being called the bottom of a shoe or a dog. Those two words are highly insulted, are a high insult in the Arabic language. The Arabic culture has defined these words as inappropriate. So, if you have Arabic friends, don't tell them those things, okay? Now, in Western culture, these the dog and shoe don't carry the same weight or meaning. In fact, they wouldn't even get our attention. And sometimes amongst friends, you can punch somebody on the shoulder and say, hey, you dog. Well, I'm not Arabic, so that doesn't mean anything to me. If I were Arabic, I would have a different response, I'm sure. And for obvious reasons, I won't give you any Western examples. You'll thank me for that later, I'm sure. Words themselves are not deemed ungodly in the Bible, but the intent, the heart, and the cultural understanding behind them is what is cr crucial. While it is the culture that defines a word as inappropriate, God judges the intent. So he goes right to the heart of the issue. What are you thinking? What, are, what is in your heart? Why are you doing that? That's what God looks at. James is clear. It does not matter if you understand the word or not. Do not use that language. So how does James tell us to avoid such pitfalls? The answer is revealed in the text. The last half of verse 12, it says, But let your yea be yea, let your yes be yes, and your no be no, unless you fall into condemnation. It means to simply speak the truth, answer directly, and avoid profanity when doing so. A simple yes or no is quite sufficient without all of the adjectives. Much of the swearing we hear today, believe it or not, is, is useless, offensive, and completely avoidable. Completely avoidable. We need to honor the Lord in every aspect of our lives, our speech or otherwise. The world will place little value on our testimony when it is tainted by colorful conversation. It's our testimony that is tainted. And as a result, it's God who is tainted in other people's minds when we use that. As we close this morning, I've got to ask, are we displaying godly patience amid a distinctly difficult and trying world? Are we long-suffering toward those who mistreat us or are quick to lash out? Are we controlling our language, or are we being inconsiderate and rebellious with our language? The greatest example of patience we have is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, if anyone had a reason to lash out in anger, he did. Yet he endured the cruelty and suffering of the cross with patience and restraint. He did not falsely accuse God. He did not use abusive language against his accusers. God has instructed us 
to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world in many things and also in the use of our language through real patience. We need to follow Christ's example. He alone can change a heart of sin, prone to impatience, anger, and cursing, to a heart of patience and compassion. If you are not saved, I dare say you do not possess the ability to spiritually overcome any of that. And anyone who is not saved needs to seek Jesus for the needs of their life, and then they will be able to overcome. That's James 5, 7 to 12. 